this. Up here, we are coming to the near the end of our series on Malachi. But if any of you are like me, we had a week off with a missionary last week. We had Thanksgiving, we ate turkey, and we forgot what we have been talking about as we've gone through this series. Or maybe you've missed weeks, maybe you're new with us today, and you have no idea what's going on in Malachi or that it's even a book of the Bible. You're in luck. I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of what we have covered so far. So the book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It was written by a prophet named Malachi about a hundred years after the Israelites who had been conquered by the Babylonians. They returned back to Jerusalem, their city that had been desecrated and ruined, and they'd rebuilt their wall, and they'd rebuilt their temple, and they'd kind of been having the sacrificial system going on in their temple for about a hundred years. But it didn't look anything like it looked like before all this bad stuff had come to Jerusalem. And so in this book, God challenges the people and their apathy with these disputes. It's really six, uh, they're almost fictional. They, the people probably didn't have this actual conversation with God, but he knew their heart. He knew what they were thinking. And so there's like these fictional disputes between God and the people and how they feel about God that, are, that we covered as we've walked through the book of Malachi. So the first question the people asked of God was, how have you loved us? And if you recall, the people were feeling like God didn't have any special love or care for them. And so God reminded them of the difference between Jacob, their ancestor, and Esau, the ancestor of the Edomites, their enemies. And we talked about the difference between predestination, which we understand is a biblical concept, and that of predetermination, which is an unbiblical concept of God saying, any, many, miny, mo, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. That's not how it works. God, Jesus died on the cross for all of us, that those who put their faith in Jesus might be saved. And then we went to the next question, the next dispute, where they said, how have we shown contempt for your name. And God says, it's really easy. You're looking at all the animals in your herd and you're picking your cull animal, the worst one that you were going to get rid of anyway. And you're bringing that to me as a sacrifice. Essentially, you're giving me your leftovers. How am I supposed to feel about that? And we talked about how it's so important for us as Christians to give God our best. Then we looked at the question where they said, you ask why? And it was when their offerings were not accepted. And God said, it's because you've been unfaithful to the wife of your youth. You're just getting divorced so that you can chase grass that's greener on the other side of the fence. And we talked about the biblical teachings on divorce that week. If there's any of these messages that you missed and you're curious about, you can always find them online on our website or out on YouTube, search for First Baptist Sheridan or Facebook. The next question, how have we wearied him? And this was when the Israelites were saying that apparently what the evildoers are doing must be good because God's not judging them. And they're questioning God's justice. And they're saying, God, you don't seem very fair right now. You're not doing bad things to the bad people. And we saw that they were kind of being like whiny little kids complaining to God about he's not doing things how they expect him to do those things. 
When last time spoke in Malachi, they asked, how are we robbing you? And the Israelites, what we found is they had failed to give their ten, one-tenth, or what is called the tithe, of their produce, their crops to God. They're holding back those offerings. And as a result, that's what the priests lived on. So the priests couldn't continue to do their priestly duties, and they had to go out and work to provide for their own families. And it became a big mess. And we looked at this New Testament concept of generosity that's all over the pages of Scripture. And as Christians, that we are called to be generous and to give with uh, gratitude in our hearts. And today, we're going to look at the sixth and final dispute where they ask, what have we said against you? Just hearing that question, I'm sure you're thinking, uh-oh, this isn't going to go well for them. If this goes how the previous five disputes went, and they're asking, well, what have we said against you? We can only wonder. So, this is where we're going right now. If you want to open your Bibles, if you haven't already, we're going to be in Malachi, picking up the very end of chapter 3. So this dispute picks up in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. It's the last book right before you get to the New Testament, which is going to be a seamless transition into Christmas. Trust me, we'll get there soon enough. But this is our text today. begins with verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. And I understand this sounds a lot like or the complaint that God's not fair that we looked at several weeks ago. You know, God, why are you allowing the evildoers to get away with these things? It seems like what's bad is actually good. Essentially, it's like, look, God, these arrogant evildoers are prospering, and you don't even seem to notice. They're getting away with it. And so there, uh, there must have been a lot of that going on, and this was something that was just really had people upset. Like, how can these people do these things, God, and you're not judging them for it? But in this complaint, we also see there's a new aspect to it, and it goes something like this. God, do you even notice all the good stuff that I'm doing? Why aren't you rewarding me for being so good? And as you read through that passage, it's almost got this feeling of like, but God, I'm trying to earn something from you. God, do you not notice I'm going around mourning. I'm doing the things that you told me I'm supposed to do. But you're not blessing me the way that I expect to be blessed. I'm not experiencing like, God, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. I obey you. You should bless me. But if you've been listening to me preach up here for any amount of time, I regularly remind us Christianity is unique in that we cannot earn anything from God. We can do all the good things. We can be obedient and righteous, but ultimately that doesn't earn from him salvation. That doesn't earn, like he isn't forced to then bless us because we did good things. When you think about it in that lens, like if you've been married for any amount of time, maybe you've fallen into this trap. It never goes well for me. Where you're like, you know what? I want my spouse to do something nice for me. 
So I'm going to do something nice for her, and then she will return the favor. Some of you are you're smiling. Maybe you've seen this blow up in your face before. I know I have. Michelle, did you notice I did the laundry, and I cleaned the dishes, and I washed the whole table? And I sit there smiling, and I'm waiting for her to come and run at me with hugs and kisses and so pleased with this great behavior that I've done for her, and I get a thanks. <laughs> well, that's not what I was looking for. But she sees right through it. I'm not looking at her right now, by the way. It's easier not to. <laughs> she like, if you try to do something for your spouse and you have ulterior motives and you're hoping for a reaction, a reward for your behavior, they see through it. That's essentially what's going on right now with the people in Israel. Like, they're like, but God, I'm mourning. I'm doing these things that you say you want me to do, but I'm not seeing the result. You're not giving me what I expect you to do for me. And we understand that's not how God's economy works at all. So they're, they're just disappointed in God at that point. And then God has this very unique response to this dispute. This is the one and only time we see in Malachi. God essentially tells a story, a little narrative passage here. If we pick up and we look at verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between those who serve God and those who do not. And so what we see in this story is that God sees everything. He sees the complainers and those who find him to be so unfair. He hears that. That's why he has this dispute played out so that they know he hears what they're talking about behind his back. But he also sees the remnant he sees the righteous ones who have given God their whole hearts, who fear and revere his name. And he listens to them. It's as though he's right there with them. He's like the fly on the wall. And he knows what they're doing. He sees them write this scroll of remembrance where they rec recount all the faithful things that God has done for them. Yeah, it may not seem like much, but they're reminding themselves, hey, he said our ancestor, he promised first Abraham that we'd be a great nation. He set us free from Egypt. He brought us into the promised land. We defeated the Philistines. We built this kingdom. Even though the Babylonians took us and brought, dragged us back to Babylon, they allowed us to resettle here in Jerusalem. They remembered God's faithfulness. And then God says that one day he is going to separate the righteous from the wicked. There's going to be a distinction. They'll be separated and they will receive different consequences. It's like the cattle gate that you can open and close. I've been looking at those because I got sheep now. So you put them through the chute and you can move the gate back and forth. Sheep and goats, sheep and goats, you can separate. And there's this picture, God's going to separate. There will be a distinction based on how you live your life in being fully faithful to God or being a complainer towards God. 
And before I go further, I understand that this topic of divine judgment has seemed to come up a lot in my messages in these last few months. And I promise you, that is unintentional. But what I do find interesting is as you just walk through these series that I put together, not typically understanding where it's going to go until I get there, it keeps popping up because judgment is all through the pages of Scripture. Some people now, it's popular to say, you know what, God's a God of love, and we, that's absolutely true, but they want to get rid of and do away with the God of judgment that one day will separate the righteous from the wicked, those who put faith in Jesus from those who haven't. And you have to do some very uh, complicated mental gymnastics to try to pull that out of the pages of Scripture, because as I've noticed, and maybe you have too, in these messages in recent months, judgment is all across the pages of the Bible. There's no getting away from it. It's true. And so we need to be ready for it. So, Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 continues, Surely the day is coming. See? Just like people in our day who doubt that God is ever actually going to judge, Malachi is making sure to write down, he has people in his day who don't believe that this day of judgment is ever going to come. They don't believe that God is ever going to make things right. So he's very clear, surely this day is coming. And it continues, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. Just like we saw earlier in this book, God's judgment is often described in terms of fire and lives being burned up and destroyed. And that's why it's popular in culture when we picture hell, we picture red devil with a little pitchfork and, you know, uh, horns, but then there's always flames. And it's because this fire illustration is used so often when it talks about the day of judgment. But we have to also understand we can't take this completely literally and imagine it's just like our world but with flames everywhere because then we'd have to take the very next verses and say that those are literal as well and therefore the righteous will be happily skipping and dancing on top of the ashes of those who have been burned up. And that's a picture that I probably would take symbolically more than literally. So uh, I want to jump to that right now then in verse 2 and 3. We read, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. And the, so this is the first time in the book where we see the reward for the righteous. And it paints this picture of this joy-filled, happy day. If you have farmed and you have young calves, I haven't had calves, but I watch a lot of YouTube on farmers. A young calf that's like happy on fresh grass, they are fun. They just kind of bounce around, not a care in the world. They're entertaining to watch. And so it's so interesting that in this prophecy, you know, where it's talking about the fire that's going to burn these people up, and then it's this picture of calves frolicking in the field, and the sun coming up with healing in its wings. And it was common in those days to imagine the sun having wings as it flew through the sky. 
And so it's just picturing this happy day of the rays of the sun and the light bursting forth and this beautiful picture of life is easy and joy-filled and contented, satisfied. And he's saying it's all going to be worth it. And then this interesting twist, because so much of the complaint up to this point has been that God is unfair and that bad people have good things happening to them and they are actually trampling on the righteous. He's like, look, there's going to be this upheaval. There's going to be where everything that's wrong is made right, where ultimately the righteous will be trampling on the ashes of the wicked. It's this picture to just show, I'm going to take what you see is upside down, and you're correct, it is, and I'm going to flip it and make it right. I don't think it's meant to be taken literally. It's meant for us to understand that God is going to be the God of justice and he's going to right all the wrongs that we perceive. And he sees as well, he's simply being gracious in giving more time for people to have the opportunity to repent. But one day, justice and judgment is coming for all of us. So, we're very close to the end of Malachi. Next week, we only have a couple of verses, but it really acts as a hinge to Christmas. So this is kind of the wrap-up for the book. And as we've gone through the book of Malachi, what we've consistently seen is that people are continually questioning God because he's not acting how they think he should. He's not loving them. He's not responding to their sacrifices. He's not happy with them. He's not judging the bad people and patting them on the back. And so they're like, God, are you even here? You seem so distant. Why are you not being the God that we envision you to be? And that's a problem. If you start putting your own expectations on God, you're probably going to get it wrong. You see, they had some massive blind spots. They didn't understand their sin, their wrong, what they were doing to screw things up. But God's like, look, I see it all. I see that you're giving me your leftovers. I see, men, that you're leaving your wives so that you can go marry some young, cute thing and keep having kids. That's not fair. You're proving to be unfaithful with them, and you're proving to be unfaithful to me. And he's calling them out for this. He's saying, you know what? It's not okay for you to distrust me. To think that you can do whatever you want to make your own life fine. And then do the bare minimum to try to offer to me as sacrifice. And think that I should be so pleased with you. Let's be honest. How they're living is a far cry from the Shema. The Shema. Those are the crucial words from Deuteronomy that every single child, Israelite child, would have memorized. And as I read this to you, you're going to be like, oh, I didn't know it was called the Shema. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In fact, when you look through the pages of Scripture, you see this concept over and over. God wants your whole heart. Nowhere in the pages of Scripture do we see somebody held up as a hero who only gives God part of their heart and relies on themselves for the rest. People who clearly gave God their whole hearts include Moses, Joshua, and King David. And we see Bible verses about all of them saying God has their whole heart. Characters who hold back from God are seen as villains. King Saul comes to mind. 
He was a guy who never fully trusted God. And as a result, he was king for a while, but God took the kingdom away from him. He always argued with God when he thinks how he wanted. And today, we see this huge difference between people who say that they're Christians, but they're trying to just earn salvation. I go to church once in a while. I drop a 20 in the offering plate. I try not to swear. I'm going to follow the rules, hoping that one day God will say, you were a pretty good person, so come on in. And Christians who understand, that's not how Christianity works at all. Christianity says, God, you get all of me. You get my whole heart. I'm going to trust in you for everything I need. That's what God wants. He doesn't want a little bit of obedience to try to earn your way in. He wants your whole heart. He wants your full devotion. And when you work through what we've read in Malachi, what you really see is it's developing a picture of somebody who has given God their whole heart. So let's review what we've done through the book of Malachi. See how you measure up as we go through these messages. The first one, if you've given God your whole heart, then you will recognize his goodness. You won't wonder if God loves you. You won't see him as this mean, cruel father who's just looking for your sin, waiting to punish you. Instead, you'll feel confident in his love, his care, his concern, and his provision for your life. You'll see his hand at work on the events of your world. Also, you'll give God your best. You won't just give him your leftovers. The last couple minutes of your night before you fall asleep or the last dollar in your wallet after you have spent money on whatever items that you care to purchase for yourself all month long, if that's all God gets, you're saying, God, I have my priorities, and you are what's left. People who have given God their whole heart say, God, I want to give you the best of my time, my attention. I want to serve in ministries that are meaningful. Even though I'm busy, I'm going to carve out time to serve you. I'm going to give to you what amount I feel you want me to give, and I'm not going to just base it on how much is left in my budget after I have overblown my budget spending on my pet projects. You'll trust in his justice. You'll stop wondering why bad things happen to good people. And you'll come to peace with the, this idea that life's not fair for now. Because you trust in God's justice. You trust that he faithfully will make the wrongs right. And that one day you'll experience the reward of a lifetime. God's justice will prevail. And so you live with a hope for the future, believing that God is faithful and that surely the day of the Lord will come. You'll be generous with offerings, not holding back or giving out of compulsion because it's a joy-filled response to what God has given to you. You'll worship without expecting something in return. So your spirituality or obedience won't just be a payment for some blessing that you hope God will reward you with. That's kind of that uh, word of faith, the stuff on TV. You know, if you'll just give $100 to my ministry, then God has to overflow. Like, yes, God does reward, but we can't try to make it this exchange and strong arm him into it. 
We're generous because God's generous with us. And then often he'll continue to be generous because he wants your generosity to expand to those around you. But you can't earn a trip to heaven, nor should you just be obedient to try to get your fire insurance and avoid hell. Ultimately, God wants a heart that's after him. So in the time of Malachi, much like today, many people's love for God had grown cold. They were trying to serve him without it actually costing them much at all. They wanted their lives on their terms, and they wanted to receive the blessing from God. But God wasn't satisfied with their apathy. And today, he's not satisfied with apathetic Christians who try to live with one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. I want both ways. I want Burger King. I want to have it my way. He's saying, no, that's not what we do. So knowing that and seeing how God called out the Israelites 2,400 years ago, to look at your own life, to evaluate based on this outline that we've gone through. Are you giving God your whole heart? Or are you holding something back? Are you fully trusting in his goodness and his justice and his faithfulness? Or is your hope for a future rooted primarily in yourself and what you can achieve? If you find yourself with one foot in and one foot out, take a moment to look back at your life. Create your own scroll of remembrance. Remember those times that God has spoken to you. Remember those times that you felt closest to him. Remember those times that he's carried you through hard things. And remember that he can be trusted, that he is faithful, and he deserves your whole heart. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray?